The epistle comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, beginning at verse 6 and reading to verse 19. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. This is the end of the epistle. The Gospel is written in the book of Luke, uh, in chapter 11, beginning at verse 1 to verse 13. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, 
Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. May I speak in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. When I uh, walked the pilgrim route to Santiago, I often thought of the life of the medieval pilgrim. It was hard, unrelenting, dangerous. They were far from home, always vulnerable to those waiting in the trees to leap out on them and rob them. They didn't even have decent boots. Yet they were so absorbed by the task to which they'd set themselves that they kept going day after day, week after week, and sometimes month after month. They'd left behind their old life as they set their minds on the holy city lying at the end of the journey where they hoped to have a special experience of God's presence. And meanwhile, they kept moving along the way, welcomed and protected and refreshed by one religious house after another, by prayer and worship, by the common life of the pilgrim, sharing their hardships and encouraging one another, enlivened by the shared vision which drove them forward. For the first disciples of Jesus and their successors, life as Christians was a pilgrimage through a hostile environment. They, too, were sustained by a common faith and a common life and vision And in giving them the Lord's Prayer, Jesus was giving them the best equipment for the journey, which would sustain them and keep their faith alive in an earthly existence which was often hard, sometimes dangerous, and always demanding. In our readings in St. Luke's Gospel, today we are reminded of one of the most precious moments of Jesus' ministry. The disciples had been with him uh, close enough so that nothing was hidden from them 
and they observed that at the heart of Jesus' life was prayer. It expressed his relationship with God, gave him the strength to do what he had to do uh, in his healing and teaching ministry, and enabled him to resist all attacks. It was the source of his wisdom and the secret of his holiness. They could see clearly that if they were to grow in discipleship, to be truly followers of the Lord, they needed to be able to follow him in his life of prayer. What they'd learned about prayer from the synagogue was far from the reality of Jesus' prayer. So they asked him simply, Lord, teach us to pray. And so he gave them the Lord's Prayer, a pattern for the prayer life for all Christians, a prayer used by every generation in every worshipping Christian community throughout the world, today as on every Lord's Day, by beginners in the faith and by the great mystics, said, sung, or in silence, the pattern and shape of the prayer is part of our worship. If we too want to grow and to enjoy our relationship with the Lord, to know his will, to find his strength, and to offer our worship, we must ask the same question as those first disciples. Lord, teach us to pray. As we then meditate on this short and simple passage, I want to focus our thoughts on one phrase, your kingdom come. First, the first word is your or thy. And so, using that word, Jesus focuses his prayer on his Father, to whom all prayer is addressed. In all the busyness and ordinariness of human life, Jesus steps aside into his Father's world, the world of the Spirit, and he directs, has direct dealings then with the Father, drawing on his divine life. Sometimes he emphasized this otherness by going some distance with the disciples to be alone with his God. Sometimes by prayer continuing throughout the night, uh, he found himself alone with God, and the darkness of the night hid the turmoil and destruction, distraction of the world, and sleep stilled its constant demands and distractions, where he was able to be alone with his father. Especially he turned in prayer when tempted, when uncertain and looking for guidance, when deeply distressed, as in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was also clear to the disciples that this daily experience of prayer was not simply an add-on to his life of service and healing, but was its sine qua non, an essential, without which all the rest would be unfocused and earthbound. His life had to be centered on him who was the beginning and end of all life. If this was what drove Jesus to pray, so must it be for all disciples. We too must ensure that our lives, though lived in the world, must be rooted 
in the beyond. Not only is God Father to Jesus the Son, but we are to pray to him as our Father, with all the overtones of familiarity and intimacy and trust and commitment that that word implies. But we do not forget that this Father is in heaven, and we long that his name may be hallowed, honored. So we move to the word kingdom, uh, your kingdom come. If the use of the term father at the beginning of the prayer suggests the loving head of a family to whom we come with a degree of intimacy and trust, the use of the word kingdom carries with it other concepts. To anyone living in the Roman Empire, particularly in a vassal state such as Judea, the word kingdom reminded its subjects of the framework of Roman law, of the absolute power in the world of Caesar and his soldiers, of the privileges that that might bring to his citizens, which Paul was not slow to assert, and of the obligations in terms of payment of taxes and obedience to the law which it brought with it. But the kingdom of the prayer is of a different stripe. It is God's kingdom. And as Jesus was to remind his hearers when he showed them both sides of that Roman coin, they were subject to the demands of both kingdoms, though God's rule trumped Caesar's where there was conflict. It was interesting when Theresa May was handed the keys of 10 Downing Street that she laid down her plans for her time as Prime Minister, you might say, of her kingdom. And her aim was to give peace and hope and order and employment and indeed new values. How far she will be able to realise that statement of intent remains to be seen. But in God's kingdom, power is the power of the spirit, not of the sword, as Peter was to discover. Its wisdom is seen in the cross. Its peace is primarily peace of the heart, peace with God himself, the peace of being forgiven and of offering forgiveness. Its hope is not limited by the span of our earthly life, but is in eternity. Its values are the values of the kingdom like the fruit of the Spirit. So we are to long for and work for and look for the things of the Spirit, the things of that kingdom, rather than those of the world and its society around us. In God's kingdom, leadership is shown not in the force of arms, but in the shape of a servant, a father who runs to meet his wayward and rebellious son and welcomes him home with outstretched arms. It is this kingdom, then, which is to shape the disciples, the church, and ultimately the world. And so we come to the third word, come, thy kingdom come. Yes, of course the kingdom has already come. We see it in Christ himself, in Christ as Messiah, the word made flesh. We see it in Christ crucified, risen, ascended, 
and glorified. Yet, as we're reminded annually in the Advent season, his kingdom is always coming. We work and serve the mission by helping the kingdom to come. We make our own lives more consistent with kingdom values, of bringing peace where we can into a suffering world, a world of pain and inequality, of oppression and exploitation and hopelessness. This same world indeed to which Christ came as Prince of Peace with his gifts of care, of love, of hope, of life. It is the world for which Christ died. So may we be sustained in our lives by the vision of God, by the hope of our welcome at the heavenly table, by the love of those who are our fellow pilgrims. But that which will sustain that vision is faith, a faith enlivened and sustained by the life of prayer as we together yearn for the coming of God's kingdom. So may this kingdom come to us and fill us, change us, and rule us, and fire our love. Amen.